Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossin. And today's episode is Here For You, Part 2, where we'll discuss anaesthesia for the obese patient. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Moving along from our discussion about the pre-anaesthetic assessment for obese patients, we're going to jump into the day of surgery. Now, there are several important considerations when planning your anaesthetic prior to the patient entering the theatre. The first is maintaining the dignity of the patient. Now, it's very likely that obese patients are mindful of the fact that they're obese and there are a few simple things we can do to ensure their comfort and dignity is maintained. Many of these things are quite simple too. For example, making sure a surgical gown and underwear that are an appropriate size for the patient are available, that change rooms and toilets are available that can accommodate the patient's size and weight, and that appropriately sized head stockings and scuds are available. As well as this, and really I cannot stress this enough, the 10 minutes before a patient is induced for their surgery really is not the time to lecture them about their weight and weight loss. Any patient about to have an anaesthetic is likely feeling very stressed and potentially scared, and adding to that stress by using belittling language or condescending discussions about weight is completely inappropriate and frankly unprofessional. I completely agree. If discussions about obesity-related anaesthetic risks must be had at this time, then be sure to use respectful language and keep the discussion to the risk. It is not appropriate to make an obese patient feel bad about their weight. The second consideration is for specialised hospital equipment, and this can include things like the following. Transfer equipment, so things like hover mats or hoists, and additional personnel for their use. Chairs, trolleys, beds and operating tables that can accommodate the patient's weight. Keep in mind here that some operating tables have different weight limitations for their different range of movements. For example, the safe weight for the neutral position may be different to that considered safe in the head up or head down positions. Operating table adjuncts like lateral extenders and arm gutters or boards to support an obese patient's larger girth and gel pads for protecting pressure areas and points. Now, in particular, obese patients are classically at greater risk of gluteal ischemia or rhabdomyolysis. You may also need specific equipment for the conduct of anaesthesia in obese patients, and this includes ultrasound for potentially challenging vascular access and nerve blocks, and a non-invasive blood pressure cuff of the correct size. Keep in mind that if the patient's upper arm is the wrong shape to allow accurate blood pressure measurement, the forearm can be used. And standard equipment that is of the utmost importance to have on hand when anaesthetising obese patients includes ventilators capable of delivering high driving pressures and PEEP and routine neuromuscular monitoring to overcome the risk of incomplete block antagonism. Obesity is associated with a higher risk of airway problems during anaesthesia. Indeed, the NAPFOR study revealed the following about airway management in the obese population. There is twice the rate of adverse events relating to airway management, particularly with the use of supraglottic airway devices, and there are higher failure rates for rescue techniques. 
Features of the airway assessment that are particularly relevant when planning your airway management in obese patients include a Malampati score of greater than or equal to three, which predicts both difficult face mask ventilation and intubation, a neck circumference of greater than or equal to 42 centimetres, which appears to be one of the best predictors in the obese population for predicting difficult airway management, a BMI of greater than or equal to 50, which independently predicts both difficulties with bag mask ventilation and intubation, the presence of a beard, and symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux. Alterations in an obese patient's respiratory physiology can contribute to challenging airway management, and these include increased oxygen consumption and CO2 production in the setting of increased total body tissue mass as well as increased work of breathing, reduced chest wall compliance in the setting of excess adipose tissue, and this reduces the FRC to the closing capacity leading to atelectasis. Lying supine and a pneumoperitoneum also contribute to reductions in FRC throughout surgery. Hypoxemia during induction can be delayed with the following techniques. Preoxygenation with CPAP or high-flow nasal prongs, induction in a semi-upright position, and avoidance of prolonged periods of apnea. At present, there is no evidence which favours the superiority of one technique over another. Now, as Kate has already stated, obese patients should ideally be induced in the head-up ramped position in which the ear's tragus and the sternal notch are horizontally in line. This can be achieved with pillows, folded blankets, or with specialised devices like the Oxford pillow. This position allows the patient's functional residual capacity to be maintained, facilitates bag mask ventilation, improves laryngoscopy, and is less likely to result in patient dyspnea than lying flat, and is often more comfortable for the patient as well. Tracheal intubation is recommended in obese patients and standard airway adjuncts including devices such as supraglottic airway devices, video laryngoscopes and fibre optic bronchoscopes should be available. There are no specific technique recommendations, uh, but the advice is to perform a technique that you are most familiar with and which will offer the greatest chance of success. Routine rapid sequence intubation in obese patients is not recommended as obesity alone does not increase the aspiration risk but it is appropriate in patients with obesity-related known risk factors for aspiration like hiatus hernia or diabetes mellitus with autonomic neuropathy and delayed gastric emptying. Of note, patients who have previously had a sleeve gastrectomy or adjustable gastric band surgery for weight management are at high risk for reflux and aspiration despite potentially being asymptomatic or undertaking prolonged fasting time, and airway management techniques should reflect this. Depending on the clinical circumstances, the use of a supraglottic airway may be appropriate and this should be with a second generation device. Supraglottic airways should be used with caution in patients whose BMI exceeds 40 though. Kate, what's your approach to the obese patient having a minor procedure that could be done on an LMA? Well, look, to be honest, I do it on occasion sometimes and really a lot of it depends on the patient's sort of other comorbidities, their functional capacity, what procedure they're having done because I'm not going to put a laryngeal mask airway in an obese patient that has to have a headstand for some sort of perianal pathology or something like that. Um, So I look at that as a factor as well. But also particularly for shorter and minimally invasive procedures, sometimes I will be able to get away away with a supraglottic airway. That said, if there are any risks of or any increased risks of aspiration or you know how occasionally you just look at someone and you just think an LMA isn't going to sit well? Mm. If I have the least sort of clinical suspicion that there's going to be a problem, I tend to just default to intubating these patients. Mm. How about you? What do you do? Yeah, similarly, I think it's uh, it's a combination of 
factors including the time of day. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, where, absolutely. You, where you are. And yeah, particularly, as you mentioned, patient positioning for surgery. Mm. So if they can remain supine and, you know, perhaps something on a hand or an arm, the arm can go out and you can keep them in a lovely ramp position. Yeah. I think that's great. You might think second for things like gynecology or urology where you're in yeah. orthotomy position, putting a yeah. lot more pressure on the stomach. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's really a global assessment and trying to make an educate. And I think if you're thinking about it more than twice or you're feeling stressed about it, you should probably just intubate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So though we know that airway rescue techniques are more challenging in the obese population, backup airway management plans should still be in accordance with those published by the Difficult Airway Society. As front of neck access is more difficult in obese patients, marking the landmarks or ultrasounding the neck prior to induction may improve the chance of success in patients flagged as potentially having a difficult airway. Ventilating obese patients can be challenging. Recommendations for ventilation settings include lung protective tidal volumes of 6 to 8 mils per kilo, plateau pressures of under 30 centimetres of water, and PEEP titrated to the patient's respiratory and cardiovascular status. High PEEP of 8 to 10 centimetres of water or airway recruitment manoeuvres may be useful in this population where the clinical picture suggests significant lung collapse or atelectasis. Recommendations for positioning during abdominal surgery to try to minimise airway pressures include for upper abdominal procedures, reverse Trendelenburg position of 20 degrees with 45 degree flexion at the hip, and for lower abdominal surgery, a flat Trendelenburg position. Anesthesia, maintenance and drug dosing can offer additional challenges in the obese population. Though both volatiles with low blood gas partition coefficients like sevaflurane and desflurane and TIVA are safe techniques for maintenance, TIVA offers several advantages. Rapid offset of action with crisp and unsedated mentation, a reduced incidence of laryngospasm, reliable drug clearance, reduced risk of postoperative nausea and vomiting, and hypnosis in the setting of prolonged airway manipulation are all beneficial in this patient group. That said, pharmacokinetic models for propofol infusion are not validated in the obese population. We know from the NAP5 that obese patients report an increased incidence of awareness under induction which has been attributed to rapid redistribution of drugs. Processed electroencephalogram-based depth of anesthesia monitoring is recommended in patients receiving TIVA as well as ongoing clinical observation and vital sign monitoring to minimise the risk of awareness. For other drug dosing, lean body weight is usually the recommended weight upon which medication doses should be calculated. Again, as with most things, there are some exceptions. Emergency medications like noradrenaline and adrenaline are dosed in accordance with ideal body weight. Succimethonium is dosed on total body weight. And the minimum dose of atropine based on the patient's lean body weight, as lower doses may cause paradoxical bradycardia. Since complications during emergence are more challenging to manage in the obese population, it is extremely important to implement strategies here to reduce the risk of issues occurring in the first place. And these include things like applying 100% oxygen and aiming for an end tidal oxygen reading of greater than 90%, sitting the patient upright, tracheal extubation when the patient is very awake. Ideally, the patient can follow commands and maintain spontaneous ventilation with appropriate tidal volumes and ensuring full neuromuscular reversal. Now, when it comes to deciding upon whether to use neostigmine or sugamidex, either choice is considered appropriate as long as full neuromuscular reversal can be confirmed prior to extubation, which of course means using a nerve stimulator. 
Appropriate dose of the reversal agent is a must, keeping in mind that the standard 2.5 milligram neostigmine dose is actually an underdose for a patient that's non-obese at 70 kilos, so dose your neostigmine appropriately. If you want to brush up on your neuromuscular physiology and pharmacology, be sure to check out our episode Strong Enough from Season 2. Because of issues with dosing and dose timing associated with neostigmine, sugamidex may be preferable in many instances. Regardless of your drug choice, make sure you're administering your drug at an appropriate dose for the patient and at the correct time that is appropriate for that drug. After emergence, patients should be maintained in the 30 to 45 degree head up position and there is evidence that early application of CPAP assists recovery of normal respiratory function. Opioids should be avoided if possible and patients should be mobilised early. Before discharge from the post-anaesthetic care unit, the following targets should have been met by the patient. Unsupported and stable vital signs with a minimal oxygen requirement, no evidence of hypoventilation, no observed apneas, and the patient should be able to use their CPAP device if required. And this then brings us nicely to a discussion on day surgery. That's right. So day surgery is considered safe in a proportion of obese patients and is not associated with worse rates of recovery or unanticipated admission. But patient selection is key. Complications associated with day surgery are increased in obese patients whose BMI is greater than 50. Other factors that suggest a patient is inappropriate for day surgery are as follows. Patient factors include poor functional capacity, unstable hypertension, ischemic heart disease or congestive cardiac failure, unstable respiratory disease, specifically with low oxygen saturation or OSA slash OHS that is either untreated or whose symptoms have not improved with treatment, previous venous thromboembolism, metabolic syndrome, or an OS MRS score of four to five. The only anesthetic factor suggesting that an obese patient is inappropriate for day surgery is the likelihood for the use of long-acting opioids postoperatively. Factors defined as being appropriate for day surgical procedures include patient factors like any BMI, good functional capacity, obstructive sleep apnea or obesity hypoventilation syndrome that is effectively treated by CPAP or non-invasive ventilation, and a patient that's able to continue VTE prophylaxis at home if required. Anesthetic factors include an adequate time on the operating list, regional anesthesia if possible, and an experienced anesthetic operating and day case staff group. And lastly, surgical factors include, again, an adequate time on the operating list, but taking into consideration the expected discharge time and appropriate equipment for surgery and post-operative care. Now, when you look at the ANSCA professional document PS15, which chronicles the requirements for patients undergoing day surgical procedures, the guidelines for patient selection and anaesthetic factors are a little vague. It states that patients should be of ASA physical status 1 and 2 or medically stable ASA 3 or 4, and specifically regarding obese patients, it suggests a mandatory BMI above which patients should routinely be referred to the pre-anaesthetic clinic for consideration of appropriateness. In many institutions, this BMI threshold is 35, but it is hospital-specific. For patients with confirmed or suspected OSA, qualification for day surgery can occur if the patient will have minimal opioid requirements postoperatively and should be ideally discharged with simple analgesia only. There are many other surgery, facility and social considerations when assessing any patient for their appropriateness for day surgery, and though these are addressed in the professional document, we will not be discussing them here. For more information, see the link to PS15 in our episode notes. So that somehow brings us to the end of our deep dive into anaesthesia and obesity. But before we say goodbye, Kate, what have you learned this week in anaesthesia? 
Uh, so I guess we have talked about kind of stepping back and assessing situations before and mm. this was just a kind of slightly different one. Uh, so I was meant to be performing a regional anaesthetic you know, nerve catheter for a patient who was on the ward who was day one post-op and had pain. And this patient was elderly, mm. had many, many comorbidities, mm. incidentally also a very difficult airway. Uh, but um, when this patient arrived, they were really unwell. So in mm. rapid atrial fibrillations of decompensating with a blood pressure of 80 mm. and hypoxic. So oh um, I think, you know, sometimes you see those things and you, you kind of been asked to do something and you just want to crack on and get your procedure yeah, done. And the patient did have pain and needed it done, but was also a bit unstable. So oh gosh, yes. I applied some oxygen, gave some IV fluid and rang my trusty local Medred. <laughs> It was delightful and uh, agreed to see her as soon as she landed back on the ward. So she got escorted back and um, and seen by the medics and a little bit of extra digoxin and some other bits and pieces to optimise her a little more. And hopefully she's had a block this morning. I'm not at work. Those um, med regs, they really are the unsung heroes of the hospital. They just deal with everyone else's problems, don't they? They really are. And he actually, he was great. He actually knew this patient pretty well. He'd assessed her a week previously and some must have some amazing memory because he seemed to remember her echo and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, so look, uh, it, it's just that, you know, we are doctors, you know, obviously anaesthetists are doctors, but, you know, we have, <laughs> we have these sort of basic medical skills that we learnt while we were junior doctors or on ward call. A lot yeah. of us have done intensive care or other jobs before in medicine um, or surgery and, and just, uh, you know, rather than just focusing on what's in front of us actually, you know, looking at the bigger picture and um, and thinking, oh, look, do we need to do this? And then what what, what treatment can I apply to this patient um, to help get them uh, better? Yeah, fair enough. Things. So uh, what about you, Kate? What have you learnt this week? Well, interestingly enough, I have learnt something very similar, similar to you, but it was in the complete opposite sort of situation. So I recently did a fractured hip list and was referred um, or as the ortho Jerry's consultant sort of jokingly says, warned about a patient on my list that was very elderly. This patient was in their 80s. Um, unfortunately, from a non-English speaking background, not that that really makes much different difference these days in the in the care we provide, but it does make for a more challenging labor intense anesthetic. Mm. But this patient had child C cirrhosis mm. uh, with an estimated life a life expectancy I should say of weeks to months and unfortunately sustained a mechanical fall and the ortho Jerry's team and the patient's family and the patient of course had tried palliative pain relief but it had failed mm. abysmally so mm. this patient really needed some sort of surgical fixation of this fracture and sadly in the 12 hours prior to the anesthetic this patient started developing fevers and started displaying symptoms of a chest infection so we were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place where mm. our, our little window for actually doing anesthesia on this patient was closing rapidly and our ability to choose our anesthetic was limited because in a febrile patient that wasn't covered with antibiotics, the risk of an epidural abscess, uh, you know, with any sort of neuraxial anesthetic is significantly mm. high. So this um, – but when this patient – because the patient sounded horrifying. This history was horrifying over the phone <laughs> – but when I actually saw this person, they really didn't look that bad. And by some miracle, fluke, skill, whatever you want to call it, actually did remarkably well. There you go. Uh, we didn't have any issues with airway management. We didn't have any issues in waking the patient up and extubating them. They extubated really well. Like there was no issue with oxygenation. And it just goes to show sometimes that you do physically have to cast eyes on the patient, listen to their chest before you really do make decisions mm. because – Referrals can be coloured to sway you in certain ways. Mm, so definitely take yeah. that into account. I agree. 
Well, it's been a mammoth and fairly intense two episodes this week on Deep Breaths. As always, you can reach out to us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com with episode recommendations or to name drop a fantastic interviewee that we should contact. Spread the word to your anaesthetic colleagues to listen in. We can be found on most podcast platforms. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.